The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we talk about the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. Today, I'm so pleased to have visiting scholar Chinwei Mary Jo Maduabum here as our guest. Thank you so much for being here with Thank me. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Mary Jo is a PhD student at the University of Birmingham mm-hmm. School of Law. And she came to the Feminist and Legal Theory Project and the Vulnerability in the Human Condition Initiative for two months in the summer of 2023, where she did a lot of research in a very short period of time. Can you tell me a little bit about your research? Uh, Yes. Um, Coming here and uh, experiencing the vulnerability theory has been an eye-opener. For me, in my opinion, vulnerability theory is going to be a game-changer because um, it brought out a lot of perspective, a lot of aspects that people might not consider in making decisions, in understanding why things happen. You know, you may just think that you're the injured party, harm has been done you, and this, this, this. But then you're not looking at the other aspect. What is motivating the other person to act? And how can you now reconcile and balance all the different vulnerabilities that are out there? Because as embodied human beings, we're embedded in society and this society influences how we act and behave, our survival instincts. And those vulnerabilities will also somehow, for the most powerful, trigger the, how they manipulate the system to meet or uh, uh, serve their vulnerabilities. That's just uh, the way it is. So um, for me, um, applying it to my research um it has helped to better understand it because um i realized that this would be the first time uh, the vulnerability theory has been applied to intellectual property law Mm -hmm. so putting it there and using it to understand the different aspect the different scope and everything happening with the trips agreement was very very uh, uh, instructive to me yes can you tell me briefly just what your research covers and explain what TRIPS is? Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of our listeners don't know. Yes, uh, um, TRIPS agreement is a WTO agreement. That is a World Trade Organization um, agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, um, short form of TRIPS. So it is the law that guides intellectual property. You know the world we live in today? Um, uh, no longer trades as much in physical properties. What we trade in mostly is intellectual property. So that is where the money is. So TRIPS agreement ensures that the protection of intellectual property is global. No longer uh, maybe there's uh, IP protection and in this country and not in the other one. So for all members of WTU, that's World Trade Organization, you must have a minimum standard of intellectual property that have been specified in the TRIPS agreements you must comply with it. And if a country is not, that's a member state, is not compliant with the agreement, TRIPS dispute settlement system is there to, mm-hmm. WTO dispute settlement uh, system, I beg your pardon, is there to for any member to use to act against any other member state that is not compliant with the TRIPS mm-hmm. agreement, yeah. 
So how did your interest in intellectual property laws begin and what's your PhD project about? So my interest in uh, intellectual property actually uh, began from uh, my LLM when I did my master's in law. Uh, for me, taking that as a course on its own uh, was an eye-opener because many of the things trips espouse is like uh, individualism, protect your intellectual property is not uh, something that we are I'm used to in, in my everyday life coming from Nigeria, a West African country. It's not something we are used to protect your property, don't share this, don't share that, the idea is your own. So we, we live a communal life where everything is shared. We're sharing is, I mean, if if we buy an item, every other person uses it. You buy a book, you share the copy it and everybody uses it. I mean, pass me down. And you develop an idea. The idea is shared for the good of the society. You don't hold it and personalize it and want to profit off it alone. So that was something newer because I could actually see the good side of it and the bad side of it because um, really it's... Um, so for me, it was a cultural thing, and because it was different from the culture I grew up in, I was like, yeah, let me look at this, take a second look and see how this could be applied to solve some of the problems where I saw we are having with piracy and counterfeiting in Nigeria, how maybe enforcing, because Nigeria actually is a signatory to TRIPS agreements, how maybe if we're, if we're enforcing it some more, whether it could help with the issue of counterfeit drugs that are prevalent in the country and all that. Then with the COVID-19 uh, that happened, the pandemic, uh, at the height of it, you know, vaccine inequality issues, the issue of vaccine not being able to get to developing and least developed countries mm -hmm. that could didn't have the capability to make vaccine for themselves, you know. And I don't actually blame any country. I mean, the rule of any government is to protect the health and well-being of their citizens. Now, this strange disease, the virus came out and was killing people. So what were governments doing? There were, of course, people with the financial muscles, countries in the north, global north, they paid pharmaceuticals, they actually contracted them, find a vaccine for this. We pay, we buy, so, 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 if you prefer able to produce. So they had that agreement. So everything that was being produced was being bought up by, they didn't have, of course, satisfy my people first. Charity, they say, begins at home. So at the height of the pandemic, we are, the uh, global West, uh, South was actually almost left at the mercy of <laughs> the pandemic because the vaccines were not coming. And the request by um, South Africa and India for uh, a COVID waiver was not approved. So my research is now presenting a perspective from the global south, legal perspective from the global south on vaccine inequality. And I'm going to be looking at how to decolonize uh, the IP regime and everything that went in and maybe propose something that could work and how the uh, south, countries in the global south could better prepare themselves ahead of any other pandemic. Of course, um, uh, WHO, World Health Organization, has said that uh, COVID is no longer a, a, a pandemic. But then the world is just one step away from any other pandemic. And we can't have, as we, the countries in the global south, 
can have what happened during the COVID-19 happen again. They need to be better prepared. Uh -huh. So that's why I feel that the vulnerability theory and dependency and resilience will play a key role in finding a solution on how to wait on the way forward. During your presentation yesterday, you mentioned this concept that the global north has actually extracted a lot of wealth from the global south and sort of created an environment and economic system where the global south is now dependent on the global north for a lot of things like vaccines, medication. How does vulnerability theory impact your analysis of that situation, especially now that things like the TRIPS agreement are very conveniently now being enacted when the current setup benefits the Global North, who has already extracted all of this wealth? Well, um, if you look at, um, if you go back a bit to colonialism and uh, how the colonial masters, especially the European colonial masters, try to limit the capabilities, uh, there are a lot of write-ups on that that I quoted yesterday, uh, try to limit the capabilities of the, the uh, colonies, their colonies to only a certain limited skills that are not even like technologically advanced. The skills they actually had them develop was um, the uh, cotton and all those uh, raw materials, but never in high-skilled technology. So it was a deliberate strategy that kept those colonies uh, in a constant dependency on the global north for wealth, for uh, uh, any other advanced uh, knowledge that they need. Now with trips, but you can't uh, really say that they've taken all, all at once because like it or not, countries will depend on one another when there's a global health emergency. Um, now, South Africa was able to alert the world to the alpha variant of the COVID-19. So you still need information, you still need samples that the global north will need, I mean pharmaceuticals will need to carry out their research. So it's, it's uh, that's where the vulnerability theory comes in uh, and dependency. Vulnerability theory is all about understanding that human beings are embodied legal subjects that are embedded in the society. So as embodied legal subjects, we are all vulnerable to something. Just to identify what the North is vulnerable to as, and for the South to see how to address that vulnerability for everybody to meet at the, uh, I mean, to be able to satisfy their needs. So um, information is critical. If there is any health emergency, information is required and on a timely basis. If there are samples that could be used to research on, it's also required. And you see, the North try to take that information from the South. So for me, and uh, my understanding of the vulnerability theory is not about victimhood. It's not about casting blame, who is to blame and all that. It's about analyzing the situation, understanding why people do the things they do and how the system has been set up in law to address all the needs of the people and then see how you could work with the system to adjust and address everybody, meet everybody's needs. Mm -hmm. mm. One thing you said just now about how governments are responsible to their own people, 
How does that interact with and impact international organizations like the World Health Organization or the World Trade Organization and the, the laws that they create in, in light of that understanding that they are ultimately responsible to their own countries? They're not really looking to the, the well-being of the globe. Yes, that is uh, very, very interesting because um, it is still the countries that have the uh, political muscles that get to make the decisions. For the trips agreement I just mentioned, the Global South actually resisted it, but they had no option but to sign up to it because they not wanted it. So if you are not there politically, and you don't have that voice, you can't really make much difference. And if um, if I put it in perspective, if you have opportunity to actually make a decision, you're going to choose what is good for your family, what is good for you. Of course, there's that, um, the ethics of it, thinking about the, the humanity of it, what about others and all that. But first of all, you meet the needs of your people. That is why a government is set up. And if a government fails to meet the needs of the people, it's also vulnerable to revolt, revolt by those people. So you see the laws, the laws skewed towards whoever is the big shot there. So for the Global South, what they basically need to do is uh, team up together, collaborate some more, speak with unity, one voice, be unified some more because during COVID there was a lot of infighting, even with the uh, within the developing countries in the global south. You know, a lot of drag. They were not unified. Oh, I have this vaccine. It's for me and my country. Uh, we don't have enough to share. You know what I mean there was no unity. So you, uh, they need to be unified some more to speak with one voice when they go there to all those negotiations uh, and present their case for their own people because. Nobody will speak up for your people better than yourself. Yeah, that's so interesting because that has been like, that's the colonial playbook, right? Mm-hmm. To come yes. into a, in a country and make sure that it's completely divided. Mm-hmm. And they've done that in so many countries mm-hmm. and now it's still yes. happening globally. As you look at intellectual property law, mm-hmm. what institutional vulnerabilities do you see? Yes, um... In the TRIPS agreement and the, the, um, the other uh, bilateral agreement and multilateral agreement among countries, but TRIPS is the one that is very global, uh, that applies to every uh, world member of the World Trade Organization. Um, remember, it's vulnerable in the sense that it was developed to address the needs of exporting countries, that is, countries in the global north is specifically designed for them so already you're seeing a problem because it's not meeting the needs of these other people that don't have the capacity the technological capacity to make their own medicines uh, to make their own vaccines and all that so that is a problem of course trips and the, uh, with the Doha agreement try to search the concerns that the developing countries have with access to medicines and affordability but then what you see is that despite that compulsory licenses are not easy to use governments in the global south that have problems challenges with um, uh, that are facing health emergencies in their country still face a lot of resistance from patent owners and their um, home countries whenever they want to invoke the global license issue mm-hmm. uh, that's why i mentioned uh, the case of uh, 
the request for COVID waiver so that generic manufacturers could produce the vaccine, yet it was met with resistance. So you see, uh, the agreement as a whole, and the, uh, it has a lot of vulnerabilities that if care is not taken, it's really not going to stand. There will be a revolt against the agreement. As we saw way back with the Doha, uh, with the uh, HIV AIDS crisis that led to the, uh, the only modification of TRIPS agreements uh, with the Doha declaration. Very soon, if we continue the way it's going to it's going now, there will be another revolt against that um, agreement because it is solely right now meeting the needs of exporters of uh, intellectual property. Can you tell me really quickly what compulsory licensing is and just generally about the Doha agreement? Try to break it down in a simple way. Um, it authorizes uh, any country, government of any country, that has health emergency to waive patent rights and uh, for any particular medication that will treat whatever health emergency they are having. So with it, they don't need to request permission from the owner of that patent to negotiate with them, but they are mandated by TRIPS agreement. Um, we're talking about Article 31 of TRIPS agreement. They are mandated to actually uh, compensate the owner of that patent but invoking the compulsory license will allow the government of any country facing health emergency to request people that develop generic versions of patented drugs generic versions are actually cheaper of course the name must not will not definitely be the name of that original patented medicine but it will be Similar to it, they, they do the same thing, only that the names are different. But they are cheaper because they are not patented and they are available. That is the issue. So you, a government can invoke that, allow uh, generic manufacturers of drugs to manufacture the drug for their people at the price they can afford. So that is it. So um, the resistance that faces is that the pharmaceutical companies that develop all these drugs, they've spent a lot of money doing R&D, and a lot of money goes into uh, clinical testing. So they've spent a lot, a huge amount of money to manufacture that, hoping to make a good return on their investment. Then all of a sudden, somebody comes in with compulsory licenses, giving freedom to any other person to just rely on the technology that they, they've done to produce this. And when it's a generic version of a drug, we don't do a clinical testing. And the clinical testing is where all the money is burnt for you to do that because you could try and it's not approved. So uh, um, for them, no, after all this, then somebody else will ride on it and take all that. So they tend to resist it because for they believe it is the motivation to actually want to invest. If you know that at the end of the day, one guy that didn't really suffer so much will actually take over the ideas because the thing about patent is that if you're going to apply for patent if the patent lasts for according to trips agreement 20 years if you are going to apply for a patent you must make available all the information and steps required to produce whatever you are requesting for to be patented so the information is out there so but the fact that you've patented it means that nobody else can use that information or the process to produce any other thing until the uh, duration of the patent expires. Mm -hmm. So now, because you've released all the secret information out there, 
generic manufacturers are free to use them mm -hmm. and produce it. So do you see, you tend to see pharmaceutical companies kick against it. Now, the Doha declaration that I mentioned, there was a HIV AIDS epidemic in South Africa. AIDS virus was killing a lot of South Africans. So, and the medicine to treat it was a patented medicine that was uh, um, very, very expensive. And because of the cost, a lot of people suffering from HIV and other could not afford it. So they couldn't even get access to the drugs that could treat them or help them get better. So what uh, the South African government did was try to, I'm trying to just cut the story short, to make a legislation, um, a legislation that will allow the country bypass the TRIPS agreement and allow generic manufacture of those medicines. Mm -hmm. Of course, all those pharmaceutical companies didn't like it. And it drew the attention of the U.S. And of course, the designated U.S. is very, very uh, protective of its intellectual property rights. Because a lot of income, it generates a lot of its wealth from IP. So, trading IP, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. So, what they did, of course, designated South Africa, a company that is not compliant uh, with its requirements on intellectual property. Um, that is uh, under uh, East Trade Laws. Uh, that I believe is uh, 301, uh, 301 of East Trade Laws, but I have to confirm that. Yes. So they designated South Africa as a priority country. So you see all this pressure coming at South Africa. This is, yeah. I have a dying pro uh, uh, population because right. back then AIDS was like killing people, not like now yeah. that people with HIV are living so long. Right. People are dropping dead and this is the medication that will cure them and trying to make it affordable and available to people and you people are thinking of suing me. I mean, 39 multinationals and the US government threatening fire and brimstone against them. So the world, I mean, it drew the attention of humanity, the rest of the world. And there was a lot of public outcry and a lot of accusation that the TRIPS agreement, because prior to that, many come before TRIPS agreement, a lot of countries, especially in the global south, did not grant patents on on med um, pharmaceutical products or even like the processes for med pharmaceutical products. Mm -hmm. That was how the um, uh, India became a hub uh, of, of for production of generic medicines. Mm -hmm. It was not granting patent or pro uh, IPR protection for processes for the manufacture of drugs. So you could copy any process and make the generic version of version of any medicine. Uh, there was now accusation that this agreement you've made all these countries that don't even have capacity, they don't have mo money to buy all this, is actually limiting public health in the in those countries. And uh, with that accusation, the WTO had to call a meeting and a declaration was taken. That's the Doha Declaration. Now saying that for any country, that's the uh, what Doha Declaration did was to interpret uh, Article 31 of, that's the compulsory licensing I've been talking about, to make it clear, to bring clarity to whatever understanding that was causing every, any form of misunderstanding with, uh, between government and pharmaceutical companies, to make it clear what that compulsory licensing is supposed to do. Now it provides uh, for uh, development and uh, export of generic medicines to countries with that lack the capacity to produce it. Mm -hmm. 
if they are having a health emergency, permitted that. So that declaration was adopted into TRIPS agreement, becoming the only modification that has ever been made to that agreement till date. Wow. So that is it. Wow, that's amazing. So that was quite a huge global outcry then yes. to actually make that happen. Yes. Do you think something similar could happen with vaccines or during when the next pandemic comes? As we're I, all waiting for it. I pray that I wouldn't have to take the next pandemic. You know, for me, in my opinion, Africa uh, was lucky. The death rate that was expected did not uh, turn out to be uh, true because they expected, because Africa lacked the capability to protect itself. I mean, the financial muscle to even buy whatever help they, they need to care for itself. So the expectation was like once COVID came to Africa, it will almost wipe out a, a significant uh, number of the population, but that didn't happen. So for me, I hope it won't take another pandemic for there to be public outcry. Maybe why there was no public outcry about the vaccine inequalities experienced during the COVID-19 at the height of the public uh, COVID-19 pandemic was because it didn't kill a lot of Africans. Mm -hmm. So let it not take the death of many people for there to be something done to for better access to medicines or technology, technological know-how to even develop your own because if those skills are there, then these countries can actually take care of themselves. And this thing is, it's not even like it's not in the TRIPS agreement. I believe uh, TRIPS agreement mandates developed countries to transfer technological know-how to least developing countries. And the actual put in place an uh, instrument to ensure that these things are done by these countries. What have you done through transferring uh, to transfer technological technology to all these countries, to enable them develop a technological base to stand on their own feet. Because that is what it should be. What you saw during COVID-19 was, you see countries trying to make a COVID pledge, oh, I'll donate this one, contribute this one, and it didn't work out. Because what they were uh, donating were when, when not information relevant that was really, really relevant to uh developing uh, a vaccine or by the country that lacked the knowledge for them to use the information to develop. Of course, Moderna actually pledged um, to uh, um, donate uh, uh, this, but that was just a pledge. It's not like it's enforceable or anything. So for me, I pray that something is done. That's why I believe this vulnerability theory and the resilience will help to prepare ahead Let's say, you, I mean, we survived this one. We don't know about the next one. It mustn't wipe out everybody before something is done. So it's better to prepare and be ready. What policy recommendations would you have, either on an international level or on a like statewide or country level? Um, that is what I'm researching on. Um, but for now... Um, I would advise that the best that uh, the Global South, uh, let me bring it down a lot more to Africa, uh, could do, is not work in silos individually because they may still not have the finances 
or the technical know-how to do what it needs to, uh, what it takes to achieve that health or technology independence needed to develop a vaccine. It's better that they collaborate. That's why I mentioned yesterday about that uh, hubs, IPS hubs are created in countries with that capability. Not every country in, in Africa, for example, can afford this or have the knowledge. So if those countries are identified, countries like South Africa, Nigeria, you have Egypt and all those other countries are identified and you have this hub that will work at least what if World Bank should come in for funding and all that and they will work with the the West, the I mean the uh, global north to they get the global north to work with all these identified hubs so that that information is is there. I mean centered in those hubs and vaccine if there's they need to donate or contribute is there and that will supply the rest of Africa. But it's something I'm still researching on to see actually how this works um, mm -hmm. uh, going forward. And for me, yeah. it's not all about, um, and that is what I get from uh, vulnerability theory, it's not all about demonizing the pharmaceutical industry. They have their needs, they are answerable to their shareholders, they are driven by profit. They want to show that they, are, they can be trusted. If you give them fund, if you give them sponsors, if you give them contract, they will give you good return on investment. So we must not neglect their need. If they are no motive, if they are not motivated, they would produce any medicine, any vaccine, and then it is a problem. Without uh, the promise of funding from U.S. governments, they wouldn't have worked so fast to develop a vaccine for COVID nineteen. So all those things are things that motivate them. So. Also, in, and that's the, in, uh, the good thing about uh, vulnerability theory, also in, indicates that you need to address the needs of those people. And that is why I believe that that instrument in TRIPS agreement that says that governments of countries, of, uh, especially in the global north, that is the government with technological now, must incentivize their pharmaceutical companies to transfer knowledge their in organizations, their enterprises to transfer knowledge to least developed countries. So those instruments are there, just that, I don't know, I mean, I'm still researching on how far they are, they are being enforced or implemented. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you think that development in the private sphere is the only way to go? And if so, do you think that as time goes on, that's what will happen in Africa as well with private pharmaceutical companies? Or do you think that some African countries might choose to have state-funded? Yes, that, that, that I don't. Uh, I don't believe that any private firm on its own will have all the needed finances to do this alone. State must come in. You see, the in the U.S. and the global north, you see the state playing a key role in protecting uh, in public welfare. State plays a key role. So you see those grants that are made available by U.S. government, all those uh, monies made available to pharmaceutical companies to make sure that they are motivated to put in the necessary effort into developing a cure for certain illnesses. Mm -hmm. So the state must also support because you still have some organizations willing to do this. And they may not continue when there is no money. So the state needs to play a role. And then Africa has a lot of problems. And most times, developing a vaccine for 
future pandemic may not be that high up the priority list. So that's why I talked about the World Bank granting loans coming in to help these countries because, of course, it's not that they won't assign, set aside funding for health, but then it might not be at the top of the list of priority. So yeah. other external funding will help mm-hmm. the private sector and the public sector work together to develop uh, the knowledge needed for uh, for all these vaccines, mm-hmm. uh, manufacture of vaccines. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about your experience studying law in Birmingham, how that differs or is similar to your experience here in Atlanta, Georgia? Birmingham is good. It's a very good university and it's a prestigious uh, university. The experience there is good. I'm just in my second year okay. of study. Um, that's why I said yesterday I still have a long way to go. <laughs> it's a four-year program. Uh-huh. So it's a good experience. By coming here and interacting and meeting all of you, wow, everybody is nice. You know, it was a, a, a surprising experience, I have to say. How come everybody's nice? Everybody's friendly. Everybody goes the extra mile to help, to support, to see how they could make you comfortable. So I've enjoyed my time here. So, and I was not uh, exaggerating uh, with all the praises I've heaped on you people because uh, the be- behavior I'm seeing here is not something I'm used to ordinarily. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing people that, um, you know, with my research, I was basically almost doing the research, just me and my supervisor. And right now, here in Emory Law, I've had a lot of mentors, people that would pitch in ideas broaden my horizon and idea about this. If I hadn't come to Emory Law, I wouldn't have known about the vulnerability theory and the and the solutions that could be pulled from that theory for the topic I'm working on. I couldn't have made the connection between uh, vulnerability theory and IP law like I've done so far here. So it's, this for me is is an experience I'll cherish for the rest of my life, and I hope to be able to come back here one day and stand that when I come, I'll still see all of you, <laughs> and not to learn that oh this person has left this. I hope to actually meet all of you in this setup one day. Yes, thank you for this experience. Um, it's so lovely to hear that, and we've had such a wonderful time having you here with thank us you. as well. Before we end our interview today. Mm-hmm. What would you like listeners to remember about our conversation today? What I would like them to remember and to take a good look at this vulnerability theory. The application of that theory for me is limitless. It shouldn't be restricted or narrowed down. The scope, the application shouldn't be narrowed down to only just a family setup social and all that it could be applied in every other aspect of law that's why i make the connection to ip law so it's i would love them to go look at that theory understand it better and see how to apply it and i would love them to come experience what i've experienced in every <laughs> law i understand the application is online uh, and I'm lucky and happy that I didn't need to go through that process. <laughs> that I just won the uh, touring grant and was sent here. So um, it's something I would like every other person to come experience. This is good experience. 
Well, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing so much about your research and like amazing knowledge base with me. I really appreciate it. It's been very educational for me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're always very kind. (laughs) This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition or on Twitter at VHC Initiative. Thanks for tuning in.